there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. You're listening to Writes for Festivals, where we bring the best sessions from the brightest writing festivals from around regional New South Wales and beyond direct to your ears. Made possible by the support of Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales. We are very proud to present the first ever Story Fest 2019 held in Milton. Rights for Festivals and Storyfest would like to give a huge thanks to the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group, who have generously provided permission for us to use their traditional welcome to country as our theme music for this podcast. We are honoured to have the privilege. Thank you. This session is Criminal Minds, featuring... Candace Fox, Michael Robotham, and Christian White, speaking with Meredith Jaffe. Hello. Welcome this evening. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Meredith Jaffe. I am very privileged to be the festival director of Storyfest. How exciting that we're finally here. <laughs> I just want to, on behalf of my colleagues, some of whom are here tonight, others are working down at Tallwoods, poor things, <laughs> um, that we are really, really grateful for all the support that's come from this community and that you're here tonight. Um, I'd also like to begin by paying my respects and acknowledging and paying my respects to the traditional custodians of these lands on which we meet tonight, the Maramurang people of the UN Nation. I'm honoured to be here on their ancestral lands and I acknowledge and respect and pay, um, pay respects to their elders on past, future and present. One of the great things about being a festival director is I, I, I organise the program. So if you want to shoot me later, you can, but if you want to thank me later, please do. And I always wanted to run a, prim- a panel called Criminal Minds because I'm a writer too, right, and I, but I don't write crime. And I'm always fascinated. What does go on inside the mind of a crime writer? So tonight is obviously the perfect time to find out the answer to that. Let's talk about Michael Rowbotham. Michael Rowbotham grew up in country Australia in the 1960s. Instead of studying law at Sydney Uni like he was supposed to, he fled into journalism, became a cadet journalist. And then he moved on to the UK where he ended up as the senior feature writer for the UK's Mail on Sunday. Whilst he was there, he had the amazing experience of being amongst the first people to see the letters and diaries of Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, the Empress Alexandra, and also, and if you've ever got a chance to have a look at him talking to Jane Hutchin about this, to see Stalin's Hitler files that had accidentally been filed in some back cupboard somewhere and were missing for 50 years. Um, he, he also had uh, stories that tested his sense of his of his ethical and his ethical values as a journalist and it was one such crisis that saw Michael quit journalism 
And instead of becoming a, the best-selling writer that we knew him, he, you know, that we know him as today, he became a best-selling ghostwriter of autobiographies. You know those ones you get for celebrities and sports stars and politicians and stuff. But his world changed again when his partially completed novel, The Suspect, caused a bidding war at the London Book Fair in 2002. It's like they say, the rest is history. Michael has since gone on to win or be shortlisted for the coveted Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger. He has won or been shortlisted for many, many more books, too many to mention right here. His books have been translated into 25 languages and all of this adds up to saying that Michael Rowbotham is an international best-selling, award-winning author. I know I speak for many of us tonight when I say that we, how much we enjoyed his latest novel, The Other Wife, which is the last in his, the ninth and final book in the series starring Joe O'Loughlin. However, tonight we're in for a very special treat. He has a new book and a new series coming out in August, Good Girl, Bad Girl. So we've got a news, we've got new heroes in coming to us and Michael will be reading from it towards the end of the evening. Will you please join me in welcoming Michael Robotham? Candace Fox. <laughs> She's the middle child of a large and very eccentric family. Her dad was a parole officer at Long Bay and she describes her mum as a woman of limitless passions which range from rescuing wildlife, fostering hundreds of children, collecting hubcaps and reading crime novels. To escape the chaos of her family, young Candace would read voraciously and then later write voraciously. Teenage Candace would sneak home after school, grab her very pathetic old laptop that her mum had got from one of those collection clean-out things, council clean-outs that you get, and write in that awful time before bath time and, uh, and dinner time that you get when you've got a house full of toddlers. After she finished high school, she had a brief stint in the Royal Australian Navy where she discovered she suffers terribly from seasickness. She became a teacher and she penned novels that accumulated hundreds of rejection slips until Candace broke through with her first novel, Hades, and then the sequel, Eden, and then the final book in the trilogy, Fall. And this cemented Candace as one of the best new crime writers in the business. All of those books either won or were shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Awards, which is a very prestigious crime award in this country, as well as her best-selling crime, uh, Crimson Lake series as well, featuring Ted Concafe and the awfully wonderful Amanda Farrell. And if that's not enough, she's also working collaboratively with James Patterson, who's, you know, he sold a measly 300 million books or something, so, you know. <laughs> Their first effort, Never Never, went to number one, immediately to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. She's prolific as well as a great writer, so will you please join me in welcoming Candace Fox. <laughs> Christian White. Grew up on the Mornington, Mornington Peninsula. He's the youngest of four children to what he describes as hippie parents. He always wanted to 
be a writer and he decided, and I will be asking him this because I still haven't figured out the answer, he decided that if he wanted to be a writer, the best place to be was the film industry because that's where he'd be able to make a living, which may account for the fact that he has uh, had an eclectic mix of day jobs. Uh, He's been a food cart driver on a golf course and a video editor for an adult film company. I don't think you need me to translate that one. <laughs> but seriously, he has some great screenwriting uh, cred- television credits to, to, on, on his list. So he, he did the TVs. He co-created the TV series Carnivores, which is currently in development. He co-wrote Relic, which is a psychological horror feature film, which is being produced by the makers of that Snowtown Murders. And he's written several short films that that have screened at many film festivals around the world, including Creswick, which won Best Short Form Script at the 2017 Augie Awards. But the frustrated novelist was lurking within. Christian entered an early draft of The Nowhere Child in the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. Much to his surprise, it won. And the book was snapped up and went on to become the fastest selling Australian fiction book, debut book, ever. It's been shortlisted for awards, sold into 16 countries, and the screen rights have also been snapped up. So will you please join me in welcoming Christian White. Good evening, everyone. Hello. Welcome to Milton Theatre. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hello, Milton. Have any of you been here before? No. Not in this life. <laughs> I like it though. It's picturesque. Yeah, I've never been here, but my uh, parents told me that I didn't know this, but uh, you know, I'm staying in Molly Mook and they had their honeymoon there. So, and my Aww. dad, my dad made a disgusting so you, joke about. Were, it. were you conceived there by any chance? That's who, that's sort of what he said. Oh, what hotel are you staying at? And he, he did all that. <laughs> oh, wow. I told him to shut up, and I hung up the phone. Quiet, Dad. <laughs> Okay, well, tonight, as I said, we're not going to focus on any particular book. It's more about delving into these dark, dark places that might be these crime writers' minds. I hope they're a bit dark. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I don't want you all being Pollyanna on me. (laughs) The burning question is for all of us, I think, is when you read these books and they can be incredibly violent or frightening, it's like, what the hell? Who is this person who creates such a book? Yeah. So I think <laughs> the key, I always think that the key influences, you know, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> so I think we'll start with you, Michael. Tell me about your childhood. <laughs> oh, there's nothing in my childhood, nothing at all, um, <laughs> uh, that could explain what I wrote. Um, no, I, I talk about Pollyanna. I had a very idyllic childhood. Um, aside from, and I apologise because I told the story on Richard Feidler um, and so people may have, have listened to it. Um, when I was six years, I grew up in Gundagai, and so I'm sure many of you know Gundagai, where the dog sat on the tackle box, and um, or still sits there to this day, um, or shat on the t- tackle box as we always <laughs> used to sing. And um, at the age of six, I I borrowed some matches and I went up to the back paddock of the house we lived in on the outskirts of Gundagai, and I decided to light a little campfire, <laughs> and there had only been six years of drought. And there was a strong nor'easter blowing. And the first Ooh. house that it threatened belonged to the head of the Gundagai Rural Fire Brigade. <laughs> it took 15 brigades to bring it under control. Oh, my God. 
Gundagai was almost destroyed, well, was destroyed by a flood um, back in the 20s and 70-odd people died. I was the second plague. <laughs> Uh, and I crawl so far up under our house with the red-backed spiders, <laughs> listening, having raised the alarm, listening to all the fire engines and listening to all the people trying to save the town. And thankfully they did save the town. There were a few barns burnt down and fences burnt down, but no houses were lost. But I was so sure the town was burning and I was up under the house and I was never coming out, <laughs> never, ever coming out. And uh, And my father looked through the hatch and said, come out and take your punishment like a man. And I said, I'm not a man, I'm just a boy. <laughs> I'm only a little boy. <laughs> and, um, and he would always take his belt off and his trousers would fall down to his knees when he did that <laughs> I, to get the belt. And um, I eventually got hungry and I came out and my mother's cooking sort of was too good. But I told that story in Wagga at an event a few years back and all these people had travelled from Gundagai to watch the event. <laughs> And I heard this intake of breath. <gasps> that was you. <laughs> and I had visions that there were posters on the on the lamppost still. Yes. Wanted posters. Wanted, yeah. Waiting for my return. Fire starter. <laughs> what about you, Candice? You did, let's face it, you did have an eccentric childhood. I did not have a normal childhood, no. I had a I have a lunatic for a mother. She's still around, so I have a lunatic for a mother. A couple of years ago she legally changed her name to Ocean Mermaid. <laughs> and like, it, it usually delights and horrifies people when I say that, but when she announced to us all that she was going to do that, we were like, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's in keeping with, um, yeah, um, some of it was in the introduction. She um, fostered 155 kids when I was growing up and there was six of us in the house permanently um, and, uh, you know, she was a trash-picking, animal-rescuing, <laughs> child-wrangling mum. And I was in that mixture there and, and in that mixture I could get away with reading my dad's law enforcement magazines and looking at autopsy photos and she used to, she's got a quite a strange sense of humour. She um, would drive us all out into the Belangelo State Forest and in the middle of the night and in a family bus because we didn't have a car. We had a, a minibus and she would say, you know, she's got like 12 kids in the back and of various ages and she's like, I think I heard something under the car. I'm just going to go and check if all the tyres are okay. And then she switches the car, the van on the house off and she gets out and she's gone for five minutes. And know. I'm guessing she's turned the headlights off. Oh, but, oh it's in the dark. black. And on the way there she's told us all the story like, <laughs> this is where the backpackers would have started to get really nervous, you know, and all this and and then she'll come and pop up and bang on the windows and all this and, yeah, you know, she's a strange lady. Um, <laughs> so now I do what I do for a living, which amuses her no end, um, you know, because um, she's just a murderino. She was a murderino <laughs> back before it was cool. Like we've got the true crime wave and the podcast and every, everyone feels okay to talk true crime now but back in the day she would be that person at the wedding that's got everyone like corralled around talking about Ted Bundy or something and <laughs> and now that's me and I do that. And <laughs> yeah, I, I heard you did that in a car full of people going to a wedding and you were getting really, had yeah, them all really did, worried. Yeah, I did, I did. I talk about how um, great it is to be a crime writer because it's like uh, – 
you know, the, the ugly duckling that turned into a swan, you know. Um, and so my husband and I, my husband is a very tolerant man. Uh, I'm in the car on the way to a wedding and we're talking about engagements. So we had these people in the back we were just giving them a ride. They're going to the wedding. They didn't know us or anything. And uh, we're talking about engagements. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, mm, do I bring it up? Mm, do I say it? Is it weird? And I said, well, Ted Bundy had a very interesting engagement, you know. He asked his girlfriend to marry him at his murder trial and this lady in the back, she goes, Ted Bundy, what did he's a murderer, what did he do? And I was like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you a little story about a man named Ted. And, and the, the mood in the car just started getting darker and quieter and all this. And, um, and then my husband, Tim, goes, Candace is a crime writer. And in the back they both went, oh, you know. So you got permission. Got permission, yeah. It's not now, weird now. Now, your, your childhood I don't think was all that extraordinary, Christian, but you did have a bit of a thing about American culture which plays into your future life as a crime writer. So, you know, what things were going through your little baby-forming brain? Yeah, I, I had nothing as um, horrific as those uh, stories. Um, <laughs> although it's fun. weird... For the first time ever, it's something, as you were saying, that something did occur to me, a memory uh, kind of crystallised uh, of when I was a little kid and I would go and stay with my nan and right around the corner from her house there were these, it was a playground, this, you know, beautiful playground and there were these rocks and with just probably a bit of, um, you know, red paint splattered against them. And one day I remember must have asked about these rocks and she said, um, oh, yeah, they're the bloodsuckers. And I said, what? And she said, um, yeah, they come alive at night and they eat kids. Oh, and, yes. And I, and I really <laughs> believed that so strongly that I remember That's my parents cool. coming to pick me up and it was, um, it was dusk. They only came out at night and then the sun was going down and I was like, come on, we've got to get to the car. So it's so weird that you – so, mate, um, I guess I was – for the first half of that I was thinking – I've got to call my parents tomorrow and, and thank them for and, not. Um, and your nana's name yeah. is Ocean Moon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now legally, it's and yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, and actually, come to think of it, I think um, another weird event. Uh, sorry, I'm not answering your question now, but another weird event. This is sort of like therapy for me. These uh, re- <laughs> these um, repressed memories are coming back to me. But when I was a kid, I was a teenager, and in my, I lived in this little sort of. Um, seaside suburb and this woman and her kid went missing and her husband came went on tv and made this really uh, passionate speech about please come home he was crying please come home to me I'll, i'm sorry i'll do anything just come back let me know that you're okay and of course um it turned out that he'd, he'd killed them both with a spear gun Ooh. and i years later that house came up uh the house that he did it in came up for um for sale, and I was about—I remember I was in my sort of early twenties at that stage, and I went and looked at it as a—I pretended to be a buyer, and I remember the real estate agent said, um, "We do have to inform you that uh, a murder occurred in this house." And um, for some reason, I don't know why I'm admitting this, but I was single at the time. For some reason, I said, "Oh, well, I'm fine like that," but it, I don't know what my fiance would think. I don't know, a made-up <laughs> fiance. Uh, but now I don't remember your original question. Yes. Um, I think he's answered yeah. the original question yeah. quite yeah. well, actually. Yeah. Um, and the path to becoming published as a writer is tricky for everyone. I was interested in your case, Michael, that, you know, you did have this work crisis in your journalistic life that you didn't, when you threw in the towel of journalism, you didn't go straight to novel writing. You went via ghost writing and I yeah. just wondered why that was. 
Oh, look, I think I, I wanted to be a writer from a very young age. And when you're very, very young, well, I, like, I'm not going to say everyone that this is from my point of view, I thought I was God's gift to writing. Oh, and honestly, I thought all you needed to, was to give me a story and I would show everyone how brilliant I was. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, you, you know, I was bulletproof. And, and, and you were, oh, sorry, how old at this point? Oh, 11. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, I became a journalist to gather material because I'd grown up in very small country towns and had a very, you know, you know swimming at the swimming hole and fishing at the fishing hole, sort of idyllic childhood. And uh, I became a journalist and to gather material and, and, and always intended to be a writer. And the problem is as you get older, all of that bravado disappeared and I had the information, I had all the incredible experiences I'd been, you know, I'd held hit the skull in my hands. I'd done, you know, I'd done, I'd, you know, covered the collapse of sort of Eastern Europe and, the, and, the, and done all sorts of amazing stories. But all that great, that confidence I had disappeared thing, what makes me think I can write? You know, what makes me possibly think I can write? You know, and, um, and I guess the jump, a lot of journalists talk about being writers and, very, and, and a lot of them become writers. Mm-hmm. But one of the great problems they have is to leave a vibrant newsroom and, and a job where you're doing something different every day to be locked in a room by yourself for 12 months or longer, to live entirely in your head, which is totally against the journalistic sort of... The whole thing with journalists, we're spending our entire time in the bar, mm. you know. Um, <laughs> you know, that's an incredibly social profession. And I thought, how can I make that leap? And I thought, well, let's, let's try ghostwriting. And I met a ghostwriter. I met a guy, I commissioned a guy to write a piece for me when I was working as features editor of the Mail on Sunday in London. And he was a ghostwriter and he ghostwrote for Simon Weston, the Falklands hero that was really badly burned and one of the most iconic sort of faces people remember. And Robert Swan, the polar ice walker. And, and I'd, I'd never heard of a ghostwriter before. And to me it was the next step. Could I spend, you know, a long time, eight months working on a single story, having grown up in journalism for doing something different every day? And it was like the next step to whether I had the... The perseverance, rather than the talent, whether I had the perseverance to mm. to move on and become a writer. But the thing that's interesting too about the ghostwriting, when you you know listening to you talk about it, is that you're you're. I mean, you said that you were living in someone's house for maybe seven weeks at a time, <laughs> uh, you know, pulling out all these skeletons out of their closets. Yeah. I mean. How, how does that feed into you later then becoming a crime writer? Like what does that teach you about human nature oh, it's or what, it, what did you it's, – it's, it's, uh, Well, two things I guess. Um, one, the reason I write in the first person, not many crime writers write in the mm. first person. I mean there, are, there aren't many. I'm one of the few I think that actually mm. write solely. I think I've done one book in the third person. Um, when you write 15 autobiographies for the great and the good and the less good, thank you, Rolf – <laughs> um, uh, when, when, you, when you're, you know, and, and you're right, and I did spend seven weeks living with Jerry Hallowell, um, you know, and... Um, You've got to tell them who that is in case they don't know. Oh, well, Ginger, Ginger Spice. Ginger Spice. Yes. Come on. You know, um, and uh, it's all about capturing, it taught me how to capture voice, I mean, because everyone is so unique and different, and if I did my job properly as a ghostwriter, no one r- would recognise my fingerprints on the on the story, it would... You know, every person, whether it be Lulu or Rolf Harris or Dennis Thatcher or, or you know, or Rolf or whatever, it would look and sound like them. That taught me something about writing. Um, 
And I guess the other reason, one of the people I go stroke for was a man called Paul Britton, who was, I'm sure many people here remember the wonderful TV series Cracker, uh, oh. BBC series, Robbie Coltrane playing mm. the brilliant police psychologist. That was based on the work of Paul Britton and I did two, two books with Paul Britton who was a pioneer of offender profiling. And Paul taught me that we, that we have so many layers of personality and all of us have secrets. All of us tell lies, you know, and he, and, and he unpacked the sort of human psyche for me and he gave me my fascination. The reason I write psychological thrillers is because of the things he taught me about the human psyche. And so there is the, they become like an ethical line that you can't cross, you know what I mean? Like you know so much about a person. You couldn't, for instance, take it and put it in a crime novel later and pretend it was another character. Uh, no, I, I use stories. I mean there's a, a guy, you know, I use stories all the time that I picked up from books. One of my favourite, in Life or Death, one of my novels, one of my favourite scenes in that is a scene in prison which Ricky Tomlinson, I wrote, Ricky Tomlinson is a British comedy actor, best known in this country for a comedy called The Royal Family. He played his big bearded yeah. couch potato. Uh, and Ricky was imprisoned as a builder's labourer in, when he was in the, in the early 80s during the Thatcher years. And he told me this amazing story, which I later used in a novel, about when he used to, he used to strip naked as a form of political protest because he didn't believe he should be in prison. He was imprisoned on, on trumped-up charges. And he used to play chess with a convicted killer. And one day he accused this killer, this convicted killer of cheating, because the guy did cheat. And the guy just said, you're dead. Tomorrow morning, you're dead. <laughs> you know, and so everyone in the prison knew that, you know, come the next morning when the cell doors opened, they were going to see a man die. And so Ricky spent all night in his cell thinking, I'm dead in the morning. And so the cell doors opened and what Ricky did is he was standing in his boxer shorts and he grabbed his long football socks and he stuffed them from the toilet paper and he made the biggest pair of two pair of boxing gloves you can imagine huge boxing gloves <laughs> and he came dancing out of his cell with these massive gloves <laughs> and this convicted killer just rolled on the floor couldn't kill him because he was just it was hilarious you know and and it saved Ricky's life and I thought I've got to use that in a novel and I used it in life or death. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I find fascinating is I mean, you're, you are prolific. You're, you've always got a book coming out of your own and then you're obviously collaborating with James Ooh. Patterson. Mm -hmm. How does collaborating with another writer, I mean, I mean just, let's just pretend that you were never intimidated by him, that you're just going <laughs> to James <laughs> Patterson <laughs> in yeah. my sleep. Um, but, you know, like collaborating with a, another writer, how does that yes. work in terms of the cohesion of a story and how you kind of like it's like no I'm writing that scene no I'm yeah. writing that scene how does it all it sounds a bit like that <laughs> oh, does it? Um, there are arguments and things but I think that uh, what's really good between Jim and I is that at any given moment we both know exactly who is in charge which is me, obviously, and sometimes I just have to put my foot down and say, no, we're not doing this. Um, no, look, uh, it's great. Uh, people think it's – people ask me all the time, how do you collaborate with James Patterson and how does it really work and it sounds like a really mysterious sort of process and all this and it, it would be just like writing a book with you. Like there would be phone calls, emails, little tiffs, arguments, you know, you can do better than this, you know, you can do – you know, um, and uh, – 
like for our latest one um, that's coming out in August, the inn, uh, he said to me, um, I've come up with these nine characters um, already, so we'll just do them. And I, I, we hadn't worked like that before. We'd usually one brick at a time um, across our other four novels. And uh, I said to him, I don't get this old dude character, you know. There's this one guy in the novel and I just don't get him as a person. Can you explain? And he said, well, uh, it's actually a friend of mine. And I was like, well, I, that doesn't help because I don't <laughs> know this guy. And um, so uh, we, we bounced the novel back and forth and this kind of thing. And um, I had it and I just killed the guy real suddenly, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> we go, oh, they do all this planning and these, he likes outlines, really long, extensive outlines and that kind of thing. And I just killed him. And then I sent it back. I was like, send, you know, like, <laughs> like deal with that. And he, <laughs> he's like, Candace, I like what you did. It was really unexpected. I didn't see it coming. It's a really great death. But now I have to explain to this guy who I've said, okay, guess what? You're going to be in the novel. It's like you get stabbed really badly. <laughs> you bleed out. So Matt, Matt, Matt Condon, the wonderful Australian writer, tells a story about writing a series of short stories. And he, he was really worried. One of these short stories he based on a friend of his, a mutual friend of ours, who was a really angry drunk really really angry angry aggressive drunk and he thought oh my god he's going to read this and know and know that i've based this on him mm. and 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 the book came out and he got the phone call matt we have to talk oh god i've known this guy my entire life what am i going to say they get to the bar <coughs> this particular gent okay i'm going to say his name i shouldn't <laughs> say his name and he just says it's about that book and Matt's going, no, I, I understand. No, no, no. Hear me out. Hear me out. It's about that book, that story, that character. That is the best fucking character you have ever written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's not as hard as it, it sounds. It's not as hard as it sounds. Yeah. I just, I don't know, just I think of you as having a split personality because, you know, one moment you're sitting, you know, quietly locked at your computer creating, you know, next head concafe in the next minute you're collaborating with with james yeah you know it must be a very different style of writing and it's the same with you you come from a screenwriting background Mm. you don't own a story in screenwriting as we were discussing in the green room you guys have all got pro um, what do they call them projects yeah projects projects on in the film world (laughs) and and it is a very different style of writing isn't it yeah, you cool it is. Dudes, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm about to go into I'm about to go into a writer's room with a bunch of screenwriters, and one of these guys wrote episodes of Blue Healers, you know. And I remember watching that like after school, you know, like, um, and it, it's just a little bit intimidating. So we were all talking about uh, about that, um, and also about. Um, one of my series, the Crimson Lake series, has been bought for television and they're trying to cast right now. And and so you get this email and it says, what about, you know, what about this actor, you know, for this role? And you're like, whoa, you know, it's just incredible. Not not only thinking about that person acting in your in your um, in your TV series, but just approaching that person at all and saying, "Hi, you know, do you like my books?" You know, it just—it's bizarre. It's a bizarre. That's a whole other world, the TV film world. And how about you, Michael? Because you've got the secret she keeps going into production. Yeah, I have on on Tuesday. I get my Stanley Alfred Hitchcock moment. I jokingly said on on Radio National interview, 
because they've started filming a six-part TV series based on the secret she keeps, and they're setting, they're moving the action from the UK to Australia, and um, and uh, and I sort of jokingly said I'm going to be, I'm going to be man-reading newspaper in the back of cafe, and the producer heard it on as she was travelling to work, and phoned me up about a week later and said we're filming the cafe scene in Newtown on Tuesday the 25th. Would you like to be man-reading newspaper? <laughs> So I'm I'm slightly worried that the newspaper will be the right way up. But, and I, 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 honestly, yesterday I had costume woman ring me, and to discuss what I was going to wear, wow. yeah. and she wants me to ring two or three outfits. <laughs> really? Do you Can get you to keep it? No, I I have to bring my. And I'm thinking. I just figured I'd, I'm sort of I'm going to turn up in a Hawaiian shirt and board <laughs> shorts. You know, I mean, I figured you know. <laughs> You've thrown this woman here into a sneezing. I know. I've got to say, that is Bless one you. of the most Bless interesting you. sneezes I've ever yeah. heard. Bullshit. It was like a really long, yeah. It could be a covering her eyes. Candace, it could be a nervous tick, and now she's just the poor yeah. one's just going to sneeze for <laughs> the entire She is sneezing woman in third row. In <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> we didn't actually give poor Christian the chance to answer his question about. Yeah. Oh, we don't need because to. You, because oh, you came from screenwriting and then you wrote a novel. So, how does it work? Like, how did you go from sitting in a room full of people and going, I like this idea, no, I hate it. Oh, no, sorry, we're not allowed to say that. Apparently you don't say you hate people's yeah, ideas. Yeah, the, the creative, the creative uh, they're less delicate in screenwriting, the screenwriting world. They're a bit more, um, it, that's rubbish. But they, there are ways, because I've just come out of. You haven't uh, worked in newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've just come out of a writer's room where I've just learned all these new ways to say Really mean things, really politely. I was saying in the green way, uh, green room. One of the one of the things you do is say, um, you know, you listen to the idea and say that's a good idea. But there's also a version where that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, so it's really, it's it's really, um, it, yeah, it's creative. But it's completely different for me going from screenwriting to um, where I, I I love both in different ways, but. Um, uh, this is a very cynical way to to look at a script, and I don't mean it to sound so cynical. But when you're writing a script, it's really a uh, a document to uh, you know to, to get it to the next stage. You know, you've got um, you write your version, and 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 six producers will give you notes, and you'll do that, and then you've got a production script. But then the the cast read it, and they've got stuff they want to change. So it's this it's really really collaborative um, to the point where you are. Um, you, you know, there, there is a part of yourself in it, but you're sharing it. It's not necessarily you your feel, vision. So to ask you a question, this is one thing I noticed, that as writers of our novels, we are God. Yeah. We decide what happens. And then when you're in a room where a dozen different people decide, no, 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 I'd rather this happen, I'd rather that happen. And you feel like, and this is the writer in me, I felt like saying, no. I'm God. Yeah, 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 I exactly. Can, I can see you doing that. Yeah. I can see you walking into a room and saying, hello, it's God here. It's yeah. Just, it's very you. That's very... the reason I don't – I'm sure I won't do many film projects. <laughs> it, it is a hard thing going from, um, you know, a meeting at your publishers where uh, you're, everything's fantastic and you're kind of the boss to – uh, in the writer's room, especially for me because, you know, I, I'm new to that world where you're suddenly, um, you know, you're sort of like this <laughs> and, yes, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. It's a real um, – it's a, it's a shock. It's a shock to the system. But that's why writing books is uh, sort of – writing books is collaborative as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the editorial process – for me, was really collaborative yeah. and all that sort of stuff, um, which I didn't expect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, and it's 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 a different, a, a completely different beast from um, 
from a TV show. Yeah. Of course, we'd all like to pretend that you're all overnight successes. Well, except you were. But, um, <laughs> Candice, you were penning away madly before you finally got some traction. I mean, what, yeah. what kept you going? And how bad were those early novels? Oh, well, they were pretty bad. I hope that they don't actually exist anywhere on the earth. People say, oh, you could publish them now. I'm like, no, like over my dead body. Um, but, uh, yeah, I messed up getting published in every possible way. I accumulated over 200 rejection letters. And even when I finally got a meeting with my agent, um, you know, she said, come to Bronte and have coffee with me. And I was like, what do you even wear to Bronte? You know, like I grew up in Bankstown and I just imagine that there's this boom gate that comes down and they're like, no child of Ocean Mermaid will be allowed in this suburb. Thank you very much. Well, you know, um, where I, while I'm wearing my trash-picked clothes. Uh, you know, and when I went to the meeting with her, I was so nervous that, you know, I'd had a really bad breakup at the time and I was dating everything in Sydney that moved, you know. <laughs> like I was going on all these horrendous surprise dates and I'd just been on a date the week earlier what's with a, a guy. What, what's a surprise date? Well, I'll, I'll go on the date. We'll get, we'll get back to the Well, yeah. you go on the date and you get the surprise, you see. Oh. So <laughs> I went Isn't on a date just a blind with this guy. date or is it worse than a blind date? I go on a date with this guy and I turn up. And he just has no teeth, <laughs> like the at surprise. all, at yeah, all. Like it. surprise, yeah. I have yeah. no, I have no delay, like, no dentures, nothing, nothing in there at all. And <laughs> I was so horrified by it that I think that a few days later, when I had lunch with my agent for the first time, I was still traumatized. So because I told her about that <laughs> at the meeting, you know, and my mum, the queen of the weirdos, had said to me, "I've heard." I've heard that, when, you know, agents will take you out for a coffee first, you know, to find out if you're a weirdo or not. <laughs> and I was like, we're in trouble here already. <laughs> and so I'm there and I'm talking to her and I'm telling her this story and I was like, why is this happening? You know, how can I stop this coming out of my mouth? Um, but she she took me on uh, um, as a client and, and and I did eventually get published. But, I, yeah, I was I was terrible at being rejected. I, I would – form these relationships with publishers where I would send work in and it wouldn't get through and I'd send more work in and I'd be very friendly to them in the emails and they'd get to know me to a point where they felt bad rejecting me with an automated email so they would call and I am a lifetime member of the frequent criers club. <laughs> um, I cry just, you know, it, at the drop of a hat. And so I would cry on the phone to them as they're rejecting me, like <laughs> pretending that I'm not crying, like, oh, thank you. I can see where you're coming from there. <laughs> you know, and I still have publishers to this day. I was at a party maybe a month ago. And a publisher said, ah, you know, um, you won't remember this, but I rejected you and you cried on the phone to me like four times. And I'm like, I remember. <laughs> I remember every single one, yeah. <laughs> you had the opposite experience. And I know you wrote a novel that you still have in a bottom drawer, yeah, metaphorical yeah. or otherwise, but you actually hadn't written the novel that turned you into Michael Robotham, the famous best-selling crime writer, had no, you? I, I, I... No, the, the great unpublished Australian crime novel is still, um, it is still the greatest ever unpublished Australian <laughs> novel. Um, and it will remain so as long as I never publish it. Um, but no, I, I had this sort of um, ridiculous start, 117-page part manuscript that triggered a bidding war at the London Book Fair. And, and um, 
we were back living in Australia at that point, and the phone call, the, my agent was phoning from London. So I'd been a ghostwriter and done 15 autobiographies, so I had an agent and I knew a lot of publishers. So I, that, I thought my career was in ghostwriting and I thought I would eventually get a, hopefully get a novel published and it would sell 12 copies and my mother would buy eight of them and <laughs> that would be, that would be the, it for me. And, um, and he phoned me and said there are you know, five American publishers bidding and six German publishers bidding and the French have offered this and the Dutch have offered this and the Italian. It sold into 21 translations in three hours. Wow. And every dream I'd ever had of being a full-time writer, and I'd dreamed of it since I was 11 years old, came true in the space of three hours. And I've, people, you know, no, it's, it's not. I mean, I tell you the story. I mean, you don't go to sleep, and I've, to, I've told the story so many times. You don't go to sleep after something like that. I mean, no. three o'clock, we are wide awake at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> Vivian and I were staring at the ceiling, and by 7.30 we'd spent the money. And by, <laughs> and by 8 o'clock we'd cast the Hollywood film. And by, and by nine o'clock, the terrorists started singing in takes. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> how, I, and, <laughs> can I, you know, no one asked me how the book ended. It was, it, was, it was less than a quarter of a book. Wow. And so then no you had to write me. it. I had no idea it was a crime novel. I had <laughs> no idea what it was, you know. Oh, that's terrifying when, when a writer says, oh, I want to be a writer and I've written this book and you say, what genre is it? And they go, I don't know. And you go, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a real problem. I had no <laughs> There's no elevator pitch if you don't even know what genre you're in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it must have been terrifying for you too, Christian. I mean, you just put the damn thing in. You, I like yeah. the way you say, I put in an early draft of The Nowhere Child. I bet you didn't think it was an early no, draft. No, no, I, I perfected it. Yeah, 74 that's right. times. But it's weird though, that, that's, it, 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 it's actually the fifth uh, book I tried to write and the second I finished in the first that I thought was, I mean, anywhere near good enough to show a- anyone. So it was sort of a, um, it was a work in progress as well for me. And it was, you know, because um, people have said to me, oh, how long did it take you to, to write The Nowhere Child? And it, it, it kind of took two years, but in a way it took sort of, 15, 20 years I had to write. So like my, the, 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 the other manuscript I finished, which um, will stay in my bottom drawer forever, uh, it's horrible um, and it's called it, – it's so weird. It's called a um, – it's called Big Jenny for some reason. I was yeah, so hoping that Big that Jenny. would come up. Uh, it's coming up weirdly more and more. I don't think yeah. it'd ever come up before you and I chatted. Uh, but it's just weird. I it's just about it. this sort of alien slug. It's really weird. <laughs> sorry, sorry, so, sorry, sorry, so sorry. dumb. Christian. An alien slug or an alien slut? Alien slug. <laughs> no slug. In the me too, we're in the Me Too era. Slug. It's an alien slug. Uh, and all this stuff happens. It's so dumb. Um, but, yeah, so, so I, I sort of had to go through that uh, and I didn't show anyone that sort of stuff. So can, I, uh, can I just stop you just for a minute? How did you sustain a novel about an alien slug for 100,000 words? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Weirdly, and dramatic and, tension. I'm sure. Yeah, no, no, it, no. There was a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot there. It, it was. <laughs> I think it might have been over a hundred thousand words. Oh, um, oh lord. Yeah, really goes deep into. Um, I think there's a chapter from from Big Jenny's perspective. It's really. Um, oh my God. It's really amazing. Uh, no, it's not. It's horrible. But 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 for me, that's always been the easy part. The the the, the writing and the 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 actual production side of it the craft of always love forever and ever um but it for me it was really tricky to um take that next step and, and actually get it out there and i think that's i think i was very scared of uh rejection because i would i would fantasize about um 
I'd fantasize about this life I'm living now, really, you know, on stage with these two uh, amazing people. I would fantasize about things, but, but before I could, I could fantasize that as long as I didn't try to get it out there and get rejected and realize I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? So it was sort of, um, for me, that was never the hard part. I could write 150,000 words about Big Jenny uh, with this sort of, just for the love of, uh, for the love of writing, she eats really. children. I, yeah, I, yeah. I actually thought you were going to say that the funny thing was that when he told you this story, that you said, yeah. "No way! I wrote a story called Big Jenny." <laughs> no, no, no. Because he, we were on stage, and he said, "I said, what did you ever write before?" And he said, "Oh, I wrote this novel called Big Jenny." And I said, "I, I can see that. I know what that novel's about. It's like a Rebel Wilson would star <laughs> in it, type, and she just wants to feel beautiful, and she meets this guy, and he goes, "No, it's, it's about an intergalactic slug." <laughs> And this small village of people who feed their children to it. And I was just like, <laughs> Where, what? Yeah, she's like, can we, can we cut this? All Should the we stuff just started coming out and he was like, and my wife is an amateur taxidermist. Yeah. And I, yeah. uh, you know, and I was just like, who is this man? Yeah, well, you should talk. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and the chemist was like, "Oh, by the way, I, I interviewed a serial killer and had lunch with Bill Clinton on the on same, same day." day. Yeah. yeah, so we've all heard the podcast. Yeah. Come on, it's out there now. <laughs> that, that was a, that was a big. But day. it does lead quite nicely. Thank you for the segue into um, what? Where did all these ideas come from? I mean, I think you're a chronic podcast true crime person still. Mm. What about you? Where do you do all your? <laughs> Where, do, where are I've your rabbit two, holes? I'm, I'm going to shamelessly plagiarise two answers. Where do my ideas come from? Ian Rankin. Actually, I'll start with Neil Gaiman when asked that question. Said, you steal them from Neil yeah, Gaiman. I do. No, he said, <laughs> That's what it there, sounds There's like. a little shop in Brighton and if you walk down this alleyway and you knock three times on a door and you open it up, it's full of ideas. <laughs> and Ian Rankin, when asked that, said, no, 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 when you get your first publishing deal, they give you this website address and a password and you go in and you log in and you tick off which idea you want. You know. <laughs> and someone came up to him, he told that story and came up and offered him 50 quid for the website address <laughs> and password. Um, oh, look, my, every one of my ideas has been seated in a real life event or a story that I covered as a journalist or and it could be, or, you know, it could be... Um, you know, a milk carton in the old days in milk cartons in America that have missing children. Mm. I mean, Lost was based on a missing child on a milk carton. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the suspect, the very first novel was based, one of the, the very first ghost-written book I did was for a woman called Margaret Humphreys. She was the Nottingham social worker who uncovered the child migrant scandal. Mm. And that book got turned into a film called Orange and Sunshine a few years ago, a book called Empty Cradles. And Margaret told me a story about how, as a social worker, she was sent into a hospital and she had to remove a child from a teenager who was deemed to be... I, she, the, the girl was probably 15, but she had a mental age of eight and she'd fallen pregnant in a children's home, clearly been raped or abused, and, um, and the court had ruled that she couldn't look after the child. So at birth, the child had to be taken away from her. So Margaret was tasked with going into a hospital. And you've got to understand, this poor girl... She'd given birth to probably the first thing that was going to love her unconditionally and the best thing that ever happened and she had to take, take this child away from this screaming teenager. Um, and as she carried this newborn baby boy away, listening to this poor girl screaming, uh, Margaret looked at this baby and said, one day you're going to come looking for me and if you find me in the future, are you going to thank me for having saved your life 
or you're going to blame me for having ruined it because of what I'm doing today. Mm. And I, that, that idea stuck with me, that idea for the best possible intentions, we make decisions about removing children you know, or leaving children in families, removing them, but what if we get it wrong and what happens? And, so, and that became the seed for the very, the very first novel. So it's always seeded in something that I've... It's either been as a ghostwriter or as a journalist that I've covered. One of the things I found really interesting that you said, Candace, I mean, you said a lot of interesting things, but that you, you, because of your childhood, you, you, you were kind of, you're kind of immune to gruesomeness because you've, you've seen it all in the police magazines and all the true crime books your mother casually left lying around the house. (laughs) But you said that, but when something does freak you out or, you know, makes you go, oof, that's when you have to know why. And I thought that was a really interesting Mm -hmm. comment. So can you? Explain to us, like, what isn't gruesome to Candace Fox versus what makes her go down a rabbit hole wondering why? Oh, you know, I have to really chase things to be disturbed these days. Like, the, the whole reason I got went and visited the serial killer is because um, I just was so horrified by what he had done. Um, you know, I watch true crime uh, documentaries, like I'll just kind of I'll go home and put one on while I'm cooking or whatever or I'll go on YouTube and, and just be like, oh, real murder confession and then get some CCTV like from inside. And, and so murder's just going in and out of my mind all the time. But I watched this documentary on this serial killer and I stopped and I was like, whoa, that is horrifying. And so I wrote to him and I was like, man, I got some questions. Can we, can we chat, you know? Um, And then I started back and forth with this serial killer. But, yeah, for me, sometimes it's just like a moment. Like uh, when I was thinking of trying to write Gone by Midnight, I'm thinking I need a crime, I need a crime, I need a crime. And I was in the IGA with my husband (laughs) and he'd split off, you know, somewhere with the trolley and I'd gone back to the fruit and veg section to get something. And um, I'm just there and this woman was at the counter and she burst into tears and everyone was looking at her. Everyone in the room turned towards her. She was far enough away I couldn't really hear what she was saying Um, but she was going like this, like, oh, you know, this high around here. And I looked down and there was this little boy, two-year-old boy right next to me looking at me like, you're not my (laughs) mum. And I was like, oh, I see what's happening here. And I – not a terribly subtle person. So when I get to be the hero of a situation, I tend to make the most of it. So I grabbed this boy and I said, there's a boy right here. And I thrust him into the air <laughs> like the baboon in The Lion King. <laughs> I was like, so cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And everyone turned around and the mother went, oh, you know, and ran over and took the child from me. And I was like, thank you very much, everyone. <laughs> and everyone clapped. No. You know? Everyone clapped. Did they really? But, like, yes. Oh, and I, I was that. like, everyone got in on that, you know. And then I went, bang, missing child. That's what my next book's going to be, wow. you know, because everyone was immediately in it in the moment and I was in the moment and it just was a whole thing. And then everyone went back to there. And I thought, how easily can you just hook? A big audience like that so that you know that inspired me at that moment so I don't always have to be absolutely horrified um <laughs> to to be inspired um but yeah I mean I just I where my ideas come from it's just living as a weirdo you know like on my honeymoon I dragged my husband to all these different murder sites because he made the mistake of saying to me <laughs> Where have you always thought of going on the east coast of America? You know, because we did the whole, we did Florida Keys to Maine 
And I was like, oh, man, you know, I was like, there's a serial killer on Long Island right now. <laughs> like, we could go to that murder site and we could hit Baltimore for the serial murder site and we could, we could do all these ones. And he's like, yeah, all right. Yeah, great. You know, and he, he, he wanted to go to dive bars and, and eat hot dogs and watch the baseball. And I'm like, well, we could do that in between and just make our way. And, and we had such a great time. But I, one of them, there was one of them I dragged him through the bush to this particular spot and um, we both got ticks <laughs> from the bush. And, uh, you know, he, um, I, I was there and I was like, this is where they found her body, you know. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to give you a moment to do your thing. I'm going to be over there. Just scream if you need me type of thing. And he walked off you know, scratching at a tick that had obviously bitten him. And I thought that's a good man. Yeah. That's He's a, a keeper. Man. He's yeah. a keeper. Yeah. Now, apart from the Jenny the Galactic <laughs> Slug, um, where do you normally get your ideas from? Yeah, I, for me it's sort of always this um, – uh, with the first book and, and the second book in particular, I, it's sort of this marriage of um, obsessions. You know, I, I, with with Nowhere Child I had – I was obsessed with memory. You know, I was really uh, – fascinated with this idea of how memory works and how repressed memory works and all that sort of stuff. And I was fascinated by um, Pentecostal snake handling, weirdly. As, yeah, which sounds makes you sound like a slightly less crazy person. <laughs> uh, but for anyone who doesn't know, that's these people who worship snakes by uh, – worship God by handling venomous snakes and they handle scorpions and drink poison. And so for me it was this sort of um, – uh, you know, now I can officially call it research because it went somewhere, but I would just get really fixated on ideas and have to just, I just have to figure it out and have to, you know, figure out why people do that. Um, and yeah, so that, that I just sort of brought those concepts together and, and, a, and a, you know, a book uh, happened from it. But I find myself now getting obsessed with, you know, uh, recently I've been, um, on YouTube watching uh, interrogations. I'm just really fascinated by interrogations. Yes. and Did I start you doing that? Oh, you might have. I, because I was like, you want to spend six hours on something, you should I, do I this. actually think yeah. you may have put yeah. me onto it. And they're so fascinating. Aren't they good? Especially the ones where um, the coerced confessions are my favourite. Yeah. Because you can feel the cops talking them into it. It's, mm. it's really, really yeah. fascinating. So that's one of my – so I just kind of now allow myself, especially now that, uh, you know, uh, I'm allowed to, I just allow myself to go down those rabbit holes and just count everything as research and, I, and try to shuffle. I was going to say, so did that feed into your serial killer five hours? That like, You were like, oh, I've sat through YouTube longer than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, see, that was interesting because when I was with the serial killer, I had told my husband – I think it's like an hour or two hour visit, you know, whatever. And then we get there, and the guy's like, "Yeah, it's it's you're, you're, you qualify for the extended visit of five hours." And I was like, "Oh man!" So my husband's at home googling San Quentin riots, San Quentin <laughs> Candace Fox, and you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, uh, I love to watch a, a real police interrogation and watch them like corner the suspect and and you know and yeah. hedge him hedge him into this little corner and then you go, but it matched your DNA and then it's like, oh man, it's 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 the best form of reality TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really weird. I got satisfying. such great recommendations for you. Oh, good, please. We'll yeah. have we'll have yeah. Yeah. Pop them on the website yeah. if they yeah. like to yeah. say the book <laughs> show, you know. We'll yeah. put them all the links on the website <laughs> later. So you don't do this stuff, Michael. You're not procrastinating watching no, YouTube no, interrogations. No, I, I know I do a lot of research, and um, I don't write police procedures, no. so I'm not. 
I, I sort of don't really get into the, the ins and outs um, mm. of, um, of police interviewing people and things like that. I, I find it, um, I do find it, I mean, research is one, it is a rabbit hole. I mean, mm. and, and you can, and like a lot of new writers fall into that trap. They spend far too much time researching and not enough time actually writing. And mm. often the best time to do your research is after you've written the story to do the research to see whether it's, it stacks up, it stacks up or not. But I think it's, um, it's interesting talking about a prisoner. I mean, I, I got contacted I think, well, years ago when I wrote a book and I got my, my serial killer in America contacted me because he, he wrote book reviews for something called Books Behind Bars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, he, he, and he reviewed my book. And, he, um, and I got sent the review and I thought, oh, I'd better contact him and thank him for the really nice review. And we started this correspondence. And when I wrote Life or Death, which is uh, partly set in a prison in, in America all the tiny little detail about the fact that they would use toothpaste to put in the cracks to stop the cockroaches coming through all came from this serial killer mm. about he was telling me that the little detail, those tiny important little details to make it seem incredibly real and all that came from a real, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, when, when do I get my serial killer? I was going to say because <laughs> I've had a couple of guys reach out to me and say, oh, on, on Facebook or whatever and say, oh, the police reckon I chopped my wife up with a chainsaw and buried her under the M5. I'll tell you the real story if you want. And oh, I'm like, gosh. no, thanks. Here's Duncan McNabb's number. You know, type <laughs> of thing. But, but uh, I was like, when do you get yours? I yeah. think it's a rite of passage. I think it was like my third book third by the book, time I, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you'll get one. In a few years I'll be back talking yeah, about yeah. my yeah, serial killer. Right. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but who's the scariest people you've met? Are they the scariest people you've met? These no. My Who's scariest the scariest? Is, well, my stalker. <gasps> oh yeah, oh. I love this story. Yeah. yeah oh, I don't think I, ma- I made a mistake in my very first novel of putting an anti-George W. Bush line. I say that my main character said that something didn't quite look right. It was like seeing Bill Gates in board shorts or George W. Bush in the White House. <laughs> and on the strength of that, the amount of hate mail that I still receive. Actually, I get even more. I, I put an anti-Trump line in my last book and that, that gets me worse stuff. <laughs> this one particular person wrote to me, complete diatribe. I wish I, I used to do an event where I'd read the emails exchange, but, he, you know, called me every name and I decided to point out saying, look, I'm really sorry. It was one line in a book of 100,000 words spoken by one character. You know, I'm sorry if it offended you. And then, listen, you limey poofter. You, how dare you hide behind the excuse of freedom of speech? You know, you know, how dare you criticize our great commander in chief? And went on and on and on. And then signed it, Bubba. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and I then tried to go back and explain to Bubba, you know, and then Bubba (laughs) came back to me. And finally, I call Bubba a sheep shagging, gun toting inbred. Whose richest relative had a house on wheels and, and whose idea of a good night out was to buy a six-pack of Bud and watch the Bug Zapper. Okay. And Bubba wrote back to me saying, you are dead. You are dead. I have a bullet with your name oh, etched on God. the side of it. You are a dead man. And I obviously stopped all correspondence and about <laughs> a year and a half later, I went to America to Bouchercon, which is a big sort of crime writing convention. It's sort of like a science fiction convention, but no one has Spock ears. You know, um, and, uh, and it was in Madison, Wisconsin, and I realised before I got there that that's where this guy came from. 
And so I purposely stayed outside of Madison in a hotel, away away from the convention. And I got through my three days there and I hadn't met him and I thought, I'm safe. And I came out of my hotel room on the last morning and there was a man standing in the corridor waiting for me who would look like he'd learned to walk erect that morning <laughs> and come in search of the secret of fire. And... Um, <laughs> And he pinned me up against the wall oh, by the throat and said, you know who I am? And I said, I, uh, pretty, <laughs> pretty good idea. And he, um, and I just thought, I'm dead. I'm dead. He's going to beat me to death if he doesn't shoot me. And, and I thought, I've got to keep him talking because someone will come out of a room or a maid or someone will come along. And, and I eventually convinced him to let me buy him a drink because obviously... I needed to be educated about what a great president George W. Bush was and that my own ignorance about, you know, what, you know. And I bought him six. <laughs> and I spent two and a half hours listening to this guy. And I only got rid of him because I promised that I would put an anti-Hillary Clinton line in my next book. Because <laughs> Hillary was a shoe in at that point to be the next Democratic nominee. You know, obviously Barack hadn't come, Obama hadn't come on the scene. Now, anyone that's read all of my books knows that there is no anti-Hillary Clinton line in there. <laughs> now, you may feel as though that I am taking an enormous risk, but I know that outside of Madison, Wisconsin, there is a man that's bought every one of my books <laughs> and he has read them line by line. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that is a sale. <laughs> Candace, is the serial killer the scariest person you've ever met? He's pretty scary, yeah. I mean... The scariest part about the whole situation is that I had assumed when I went there that, you know, there would be some glass or something between us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got there, I got through all the levels of security, you know. I love, they, they give you this handbook, San Quentin, they give you this handbook. It's, it's an A4 sheet of paper. It's not a book. <laughs> and, it sa- you know, it says if an inmate takes you hostage, we will not negotiate for you and things like that. <laughs> and it. But that's the scariest thing it says. It, it, it says that. If you get taken hostage, you're on your own. Um, but it was very concerned with what you should wear. Like, don't wear these colours, don't wear those colours, don't wear an underwire in your bra, don't wear anything provocative. And I was like, oh. And I bought a whole new outfit because I was so <laughs> concerned about not getting shot if there's a riot because they think I'm an inmate or something because I'm wearing blue. And so I get there and I get in all, all the way to death row and nobody tells you what to do. So I said to this guard, oh, I see all these windows with the telephone. Which one is mine? I'm going to see this, this guy at 8 o'clock. And he goes, oh, actually, you'll be in that cage there. Um, he'll be in that cage there. And I was like, and I'll be in that. There's two chairs in there. We're going in there together. And he was like, yeah, wasn't it in the handbook? And I'm like, No. I would have noticed something like that. <laughs> and book is a bit of a stretch, if I'm honest, you know. Um, yeah, so I'm sitting in a cage with this guy. He's uncuffed. He's, we're knee to knee. He's bigger than I thought he would be based on the documentary. I think they were filming him from above. Um, and so I'm somebody who tends to say what is on my, exactly what's on my mind. Like I said, no subtlety. And so... The cage is like bulletproof glass and with steel mesh on the outside and um, he's uncuffed. The guards have padlocked the door shut and walked away. (laughs) 
And I said to him, you know, I don't want to give you any ideas. But what happens, theoretically, if you, I don't know, lunge across the cage at me and try to bite my face off like Hannibal Lecter kind of thing? And I'm thinking to myself, why did I say Hannibal Lecter? Of all the names to drop at this moment, this is not. And he said to me, "Um, oh, you know, uh, if you look outside the cage there, there's a triangle cut out of the ceiling. Up there, there's actually a rifleman. And if I lunge at you, he'll just shoot me. And I said, I have some problems with this. <laughs> I said, he's going to have to shoot you through the steel mesh, through the bulletproof glass, you know, and hit you. Like that's a hell of a shot from inside the ceiling. Without hitting you? Well, that's the other thing. I said to him, I said, <laughs> my second problem is I, if you come over here, I'm not just going to wear it, you know. Like yeah. we're going to be in a ferocious tangle. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't want to talk myself up but – I feel like I'm going to put you on your ass, <laughs> you know. And he, he laughed at that, which was really chilling because I was like, there, there have been some women who have tried to fight this guy and they haven't come off, you know, and so that laugh is a laugh of confidence. And I said, the third, my third problem is really <laughs> if he manages to shoot you while you're wrestling me through the cage, I actually just bought this outfit <laughs> and – He's going to blow your brains all over it, type of thing. Like, this is not how I plan to spend my day, you know. And he, he just said, he said, Candace, I didn't design the system here. And I was like, it's true, you know, I shouldn't. But he was pretty terrifying, yeah, if I'm honest. Like, um, I was really sitting there the whole five hours trying to figure out, is he sorry or not? Like, he was crying at times and this kind of thing and I'm really looking at his face while he's crying and really – and I said to um, him when I got in the cage, uh, when we started writing to each other, I said, I'm going to be 100% honest with you about everything I say and so I was asking really difficult questions And I, but at one point I was almost convinced. I was like, oh, he looks like he's sorry and he sounds sorry. He's saying all the right things. And I said to him, what was your plan – what's your plan in the end? Like you just started killing all these young women. Like what were you just going to keep going until you got caught or whatever? And he said, um, oh, you know, by the time I got to number five, what was her name? And I said, it was Andrea. And he goes, whatever her name was. And I was like, oh, you just let your mask slip. Like whatever her name was. Like if you spent 10 minutes a day for the last three decades that you've been sitting here in a cell just memorising those names. You'd have them down by now, you know. Um, yeah, so he is he, he's pretty terrifying. It's like knowing him is a lot like knowing an alien, you know, because it's things like while we were there, a dog walked through, a dog walked down the aisle like a seeing eye dog and I said, oh, a dog. And he goes, yes, a dog. Oh, that's the first dog I've seen in 27 years. I was like, Jesus Christ, that's the first, like, they don't have dogs on your planet, of course. Yeah, yeah. you know, so, yeah. What about you, Christian? What's the, scar- well, who's the scariest person you've met? I've not had my serial killer or stalker yet, but I have, been get, I have got some very nasty emails. Um, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is, yes, all right, I'll dish. From the snake uh, handlers. Uh, a little bit for the snakes, a little bit. Anti, a little bit, you know, religious people getting angry, but mostly because um, the central love story is two gay guys, right? Mm. And um, a cu- you know, a, a couple of awful people have emailed me about it. And one in particular was she, she was so 
awful. The words, she, you can imagine how horrible, um, you know, and she's never going to read anything of mine again and uh, because of these disgusting reasons. Um, so what I did is this sort of form of revenge is I created in my second book a lesbian character and I just named it after her. <laughs> so it's like a little bit of a little bit of sweet revenge. That is so You great. don't piss writers off as a rule because yeah. we've always yeah. got a way we can I, get I, you back. I have an issue on the book I'm writing now. I want to call my villain Fraser Anning. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I can get away with it. <laughs> you would be surprised what write, people write in and get really passionate and angry about. Like uh, in Gone by Midnight, I've misnamed Poinciana's and Poinsettias in Queensland, and I have had fourteen letters <laughs> about the Poinciana and people, and they send me videos and they send me links and. And yeah. they're really angry. They're like, how could you mess this up? Like I get a lot of emails about plants like across my yeah. my, my full 13 novels yeah. I've normally, had things it's about. It's normally worse with uh, it, ballistics. Yeah. Oh, oh. I, I haven't had if anything. It's all plants for me. you get anything wrong with guns, oh. oh, every gun nut pick in America <laughs> will send you the most abusive email. What sort of moron thinks a 22 bullet will do that to a body <laughs> from that distance, you know? And then always with a little PS at the end, having just called you nothing but a moron and an idiot saying, Piet, should you ever need ballistic advice in future? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What about yeah. fan mail? Can we talk about fan mail? Because, I, I mean, you've talked about the horrible bits, but um, the I was quite... Stuff, the good ones are boring. Yeah. No, 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 I don't want the good stuff. I want, like, you've, you've had, maybe you haven't yet, but these guys have had the experience where, you know, when you do those charity auctions and you get to, you know, you, you, you win the right to be named a character in a book. You know, do you ever read the acknowledgements? I'm, I'm an avid acknowledgements yeah. reader. Mm. And, and I'm really curious about, like, when you're a crime writer, what, what do they want you to do? Are they the hero, the, 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 the detective that never sleeps until the crime is solved? Yeah, I, I ran my first competition um, for someone to be in one of my novels I put it on Facebook and I said, hey, I'm raising money for Cure Cancer Australia. So, you know, and, and everyone wanted to know um, who, who can I be. But the concern was, can I be murdered? And well, Can you murder me like this? Can you? And, you know, I've always <laughs> wanted to be shot in the head and all this. And then one woman said to me, can, uh, if I win, can I give the prize to my son, my eight-year-old son? And I said, yeah, no problem. And she goes, can you murder him? Like, <laughs> In a really grisly, horrible way. I was like, what is wrong with you people? You need to Clearly, clearly Candace has different readers to me. <laughs> so what do, what do your readers want them to do to well, you? Well, no, I mean, I I never – I mind are normally charity auctions and often because of the Joe Locke and Parkinson um, sort of thing. They're uh, Parkinson's Australia or Parkinson New South Wales. But invariably, I don't guarantee. I said, "Look, you could be a body, you could be, you yeah. know, you you could be a hero." You, I, I don't, any, but I know with the secret she keeps, um, and and now that she's actually in the TV series, the woman that bought it, she bought it for her children, and in the end, the children fought over who was going to get the name. So they said, "Mum, you better take it yourself." But I gave her the choice of being either this incredibly, because this is a woman with sort of grown-up children. I thought you could be this incredibly vampy sort of milf, you know, <laughs> um, who loves sleeping with married men, or you could be, I don't know, pretty boring sort of policewoman. And she went for the boring policewoman, and I was <laughs> so sure she'd want to go for the really exciting do you, character. Do you want to hear a really weird coincidence? I don't know if you know, but you, uh, someone won a competition to be in one of your novels. His name was Andrew Witten. 
He just won one to be in my in one of my novels. Oh, he's so a stalker. Made, he lives in my town. I've made him a police chief. <laughs> but he was so, that guy, and he's got Parkinson's, and you made him a character. Yeah, Andrew, yeah, that, yeah, 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 Andrew, Andrew, yeah, yeah. He just yeah. wanted him. He's like he's a serial character winner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. That I means you're. So you now have to share him with Christian. I mean, yeah. So the Christian yeah. can put him in yeah. the next yeah. novel. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the main the main issue with that is you sit there at the charity auction night with everything crossed, saying, "Please don't have a name like Bill Clinton, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or Jennifer Mickey Lopez, Mouse or something that has Polish that has sort of nothing but." Consonants and no vowels. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, please, please be a name. And I've been really lucky. I've had really cool names. Um, that it's, I've just actually, someone's just won it now, and his name is Clayton, the first name Clayton, and the next name Carlisle. I'm thinking, what a great Clayton name. Carlisle. Clayton Carlisle. Yeah. Great and what's name. he going to be? Or do you, you haven't decided yet? Actually, I'm a bit worried because I want to, <laughs> I'm thinking of making, I've got, to, I've got to ring Clayton and just find that he doesn't have any daughters or children. <laughs> Because I want to make him the father of someone that's Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm worried that I'm going to make it. You know, that suddenly I'm going to make it that his child is sort of oh, killed or okay. missing, or, and I'm saying, yeah. oh, I better find out a bit about this person's history mm. before I start. Sort yeah, of, yeah. Um, such a responsibility, isn't it? I, I have a friend. I, I've not done a charity thing yet, but I have a friend that is. Fiercely private. He, you know, he, he he's uh, sort of a conspiracy guy. He hates he hates his name being anywhere. And I've just put his name in everything. <laughs> I, I wrote a scene that doesn't belong in the book at all, but it's about suddenly this character Wheatley is talking about a guy who got drunk and fell off a water tower. His name's Daryl Wixie, and I was like, oh, I'll call him Daryl Wixie. And then I had to write a thing for the Age, and I just wrote this thing about Daryl Wixie. And in the second <laughs> book, it's a Daryl. I'm just putting him in everything, and he. Hates it so much. You are and just I'll the just, best yeah. friend ever. Yeah, yeah. this TV thing I'm doing. There's a Daryl Wixie in that as well. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of them around. It's a very common yeah, name. Yeah. Hey, we've got to actually do keep moving because I just saw that we're having such a great time, and I promised you all that they would do a reading each mm. because we just want a little taste of what to expect if we haven't read the books yet. We're going to start. Who wants to start? You want to start? Oh, no, I think Christian should. Start. I think we'll oh, go. Christian. We'll go. From my left to right. Uh, I forgot, so I'm just going to read the first bit. Um, and actually, there's. I was talking to someone recently, another author, about this, and I said, um, when you ever do readings, do you just sort of change the bits that you don't like? And they said, oh, yeah, she said, yeah, yeah, I do that all the time. So this won't be entirely accurate if anyone's reading. <laughs> there's a lot that's different. Because it's so, you know how they it's always cheating. tell you in writing advice, you should read it out loud so that you're checking the – the yeah. pacing, the rhythm. And if you stumble, you should rewrite that bit. And you know how then you don't do it and then you're doing a reading in public you yeah. go, oh, my God, who wrote this oh, shit? Yeah. I, yeah, I hate it so much. It's like, why did you phrase it like that, you <laughs> asshole? <laughs> I don't know why I'm so uh, – call myself an asshole, but um, – <laughs> Better you than us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, I'm not going to do any accents oh, or anything so like that either. Uh, Melbourne, Australia, now. Mind if I join you, the stranger asked. He was somewhere in his 40s with shy, good looks and an American accent. He wore a slick, wet parka and bright yellow sneakers. The shoes must have been new because they squeaked when he moved his feet. He sat down at the table before waiting for an answer and said, you're a Kimberly Leamy, right? I was between classes at Northampton, Northampton Community TAFE where I taught photography three nights a week. The cafeteria was usually bustling with students, but tonight it had taken on an eerie post-apocalyptic emptiness. It had been raining nearly six days straight, but the double-glazed glass kept the noise out. Just Kim, I said, feeling mildly frustrated. 
I didn't have long left on my break and had been enjoying my solitude. Earlier that week, I'd found a worn old copy of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery propping up the leg of a table in the staff room. And since then, I'd been busily consuming it. I've always been a big reader and horror is a particular favourite of mine. My younger sister Amy would often watch in frustration as I finished three books in the same time it took to her to read one. The key to fast reading is to have a boring life, I once told her. Amy had a fiancé and a three-year-old daughter. I had Stephen King. My name is James Finn, the man said. He placed a manila folder on the table between us and closed his eyes for a moment, like an Olympic diver mentally preparing to leap. Are you a teacher or a student, I asked. Neither, actually. He opened the folder, removed an 8 by 10 inch photo and slid it across the table. There was something mechanical about the way he moved. Every gesture was measured and confident. The 8 by 10 showed a young girl sitting on a lush green lawn with deep blue eyes and a mop of shaggy dark hair. She was smiling, but it was perfunctory, like she was sick of having her photo taken. It changed a little bit there. Um, <laughs> Does she look familiar to you, he asked. Uh, no, I don't think so. Should she? Would you mind looking again? He leaned back in his chair, closely gauging my response. Indulging him, I looked at the photo again. The blue eyes, the overexposed face, the smile. It wasn't really a smile. Maybe she did look familiar now. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. Who is she? Her name is Sammy Went. This photo was taken on her second birthday. Three, day, three days later, she was gone. Gone. Taken from her home in Manson, Kentucky. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right out of her second floor bedroom. Police found no evidence of an intruder. There were no witnesses, no ransom note. She just vanished. Oh, I think you're looking for Edna, I said. She teaches crime and justice studies. I'm just a photography teacher, but she lives for all this true crime stuff. I'm here to see you, he said, then cleared his throat before continuing. Some people thought she wandered into the woods, got taken by a coyote or a mountain lion, but how far could a two-year-old wander? The most likely scenario is Sammy was abducted. Uh, okay, so are you an investigator? Actually, I'm an accountant. He exhaled, uh, exhaled deeply, and I caught the smell of spearmint on his breath. But I grew up in Manson and know the Went family pretty well. My class was set to start in five minutes, so I made a point of checking my watch. I'm really sorry to hear about this girl, but I'm afraid I've got a class to teach. Um, happy to help. What kind of donation did you have in mind? Donation? Aren't you raising money for the family? Isn't that what this is about? I don't need your money, he said with a chilly tone. He stared at me with a pinched, curious expression. I'm here because I believe you're connected to all this. Connected to the abduction of a two-year-old girl, I laughed. Uh, don't tell me you came all the way from the States to accuse me of kidnap. Uh, you misunderstand, he said. The little girl disappeared on April 3rd, 1990. She's been missing for 28 years. I don't think Sammy, I don't think you kidnapped Sammy Went. I think you are Sammy Went. It's nothing like that in the actual book. I... <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to get a taste of Gone by Midnight. So this is the third book, um, Crimson Late Redemption mm. Point, and now it's this is request. This is a requested reading. It is a requested <laughs> reading by me because I just smig it a lot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll just give you. Um, so the main character Ted is standing in his backyard with his little daughter um, Lillian, who's three. And uh, I don't know what the angle is like from the audience, if you can see, but I'm 35 weeks pregnant. So I just like to say I don't feel the same way about children that Amanda does. <laughs> in case you're wondering. Um, Lillian was crouching by Amanda's leg, trying to get a better look at the flowers on her calf. She reached out and touched the smooth, colourful skin with her little finger and Amanda jumped like she'd been stung. Get it away from me, Ted, Amanda warned. 
Look, Lil, I picked up my daughter and showed her the tattoos on Amanda's neck and shoulders. A kitty, a fire engine, treasure chest. What else can you see? I'm not a picture book, Amanda slapped at me. Take your disease-spewing human lava out of my face. I hate being sick. If she makes me sick, I'll kill you. I can't believe this. I let Lillian run away to play with Celine. You don't like kids? You're so child-spirited yourself. Um, I would have thought you'd be right at home among them. Nope, Amanda brushed her shoulders off like Lillian's presence had somehow covered her in dust. They're stupid. They're needy. They have zero immune systems. They go everywhere spreading filth and mucus. I haven't been sick in six years. I'm probably already infected. Oh, and on top of being festering virus bags, they're also, they also have strange fleshy little hands that are always cold and damp. Look at those hands. Ugh. What's got into you this morning? She was noticeably twitching. Amanda's twitch is something I've become accustomed to, something I rarely notice. But when she's agitated, the gentle ticking in her muscles and neck and shoulders and jaw become exaggerated. I heard her back teeth click together as her jaw snapped unexpectedly shut. The council took nine of my cats this morning, she said. (laughs) What? Someone reported me, she said, watching a boat carve up the water. In far north Queensland, you're allowed to have two cats anymore and you've got to apply for a cattery licence. So they just came and took them? Can you get them back? The licence can take months to come through, so if you breach the rules, they confiscate the offending animals and put them up for adoption, she said. If you can get the licence before they get adopted, you can have them back, but they won't hold them especially for you. They're cracking down on excess animals after that woman died in Coranda with the 200 cats in her house and they ate her face. (laughs) This is bullshit. I kept your cat wife, six. I kept eight. Eight's my mate. He's great, first rate. I watched my partner, her half-hearted rhyme fizzling under the weight of her thoughts. My anger softened into sadness. Amanda, I, they're just cats, she said. Don't get your ball sack in a twist. This is Joanna Fisher. She's done this. It's handled. What do you mean it's handled, I asked. I mean it's handled. I felt the breath leave me, a collapsing of my chest like a weight had fallen on me. My fists were balled so tightly the knuckles cracked. Amanda, I said, don't do anything stupid. She shrugged. I tried to handle it the normal person way. I spoke to Clark. That was before. Things have changed now. Those are my cats. But you just said they're just cats. Yes, she said, my cats. What have you done, I asked. Did you speak to the bikies? She didn't answer. I'm warning you, I said. I know guys like these from my time on the squad. They love a revenge mission. If you turn them loose on a cop, you'll start a war. I tried, she said again, looking at my eyes. Her tone was casual, but there was nothing casual about her glance. The wheels were turning inside her head and dark things were on the horizon of her mind. I knew that look. My body felt heavy with dread. Lillian waved to Amanda as she walked back up the yard towards the driveway. Bye-bye, fairy, the child called. Amanda waved. Smell you later, Sproglet. (laughs) Thank you. Now, after Michael's reading, it's your turn to ask questions. There will be a microphone going around, so... Just start putting them in the little brain cells. Um, I'm actually, I know it's a bit of a tease to do a reading from a book that's not available yet. It's not out until July 23. 
Um, but it's the start of a new series. And this is the story of um, Cyrus Haven as a psychologist. I introduced him in The Secret She Keeps, um, which is a book two books ago. He's a psychologist that comes in to investigate the kidnapping of a baby. And um, I've carried him on. But he's got a really interesting backstory um, because he's a... I think you'll get the drift when you hear. This is Cyrus speaking. My mother was the first to die while cooking saffron chicken and prawn paella with peas. My mother with a wicked laugh and a soft spot for underdogs, a hatred of hypocrisy, her love for school teachers, dark chocolate and Bailey's Irish cream. My mother with a posh phone voice and a pink lipstick and a potpourri smelling lingerie Draw her bubble bath behind a locked door, no children allowed. My mother, who grew up on a farm and had a pony called Twelve because it was twelve hands high, yet who refused to let us have a dog because she still mourned the loss of her own beloved childhood pet, a boxer called Sinbad. On that night, she was standing in front of the freezer with a bag of frozen peas in her hand when the knife sighed through her carotid artery, spilling green and red onto the white tile floor. She'd always complained about choosing white tiles because they showed every spill crumb and drop pea. The plume of blood sprayed in an arc across the kitchen bench and the sink and the cutlery drawer, which was open, and Tupperware boxes, which she always arranged neatly so she could find the lids when she needed them. The blood stretched all the way to the catbird bowl in the corner, where Tibbles would later lick it into a smear and track it across the floor with her paws. Dad was next. My father, who worked in property management, which is a fancy way of saying he collected rents and organised building leases. My father, who taught Elias how to drive and would get him to practice his parking outside a succession of pubs, whereupon Dad would slip inside for a quick half. The white line, the last post, the beekeeper, the commercial inn. Later, Dad would fall asleep on the sofa, snoring through midsummer murders. My father, who brewed his own beer, collected vinyl LPs, and once scored a golfing hole-in-one that ran all the way along the ground. But he still framed the scorecard. My father didn't use words like hate, but said he, said he disliked races and reality TV shows and Manchester United and pistachios that didn't open and people who spent 15 minutes in a queue and didn't know what to water when they got to the counter. Dad died on his hands and knees, crouching in front of the DVD player because one of the twins had managed to get a disc stuck in the machine. The knife severed his spine, paralysing him from the waist down. He managed to roll onto his back and hold up his arm, trying to ward off the blows, losing his right thumb, which rolled under the TV cabinet. My twin sisters were doing their homework or playing in the bedroom they shared. They must have known something was wrong because they locked the door and barricaded it with beanbags and soft toys and a rocking horse that belonged to my grandmother. April was the eldest by 12 minutes and always acted like an older sister. Ernest and bossy, she was the hoarder, the show-off, the baker of cupcakes, pastel of strawberry lip gloss and jelly snakes, and able to name every king and queen of England using a rhyme she'd learned off by heart. Esme was different, but the same, part of a collective child, or two halves with the same face, each slightly different, but in symmetry. Esme the shy, the meek, the songbird, with a dancer's grace and tiny feet, Esme the peacemaker, the advocate, the knitter. Esme who pressed flowers in the pages of a diary and gave names to an every animal she ever met. April fell first, which followed the natural order of how the twins handled everything, 
She ran towards Elias and the knife entered her ribs and came out near her spine. Esme tried to crawl beneath her bed but was dragged out by her ankles, scratching at the floor and bunching the rug under her body. I try not to imagine her fear or the sound of the metal on air or metal on flesh or the silence that followed. People always ask, where was I? At football practice, on my way home. Mama told me to be home by six. She told me never to, not to even think of stopping for hot chips. Of course I didn't listen. I hadn't eaten since lunchtime at school and the fat fried had a cone of chips for a quid. Though well, I had to forego the vinegar or mum would smell it on my breath. I scoffed the chips since I had time to ride past Ailsa Piper's house in the hope I might glimpse her in the garden or coming home from netball practice. Ailsa was a year older than me. I once helped her find a bracelet that she lost on her way to school. We hadn't spoken since then, but she always smiled at me when we bumped into each other. Happenstances that I tried to orchestrate as often as possible. Running late, I had to stand up on the pedals and push hard to make it home by six. I wheeled my bike through the side gate and rested it against the shed. Then I looked, took off my muddy football boots and banged them on the back step. I could hear canned TV laughter coming from the front room as I opened the back door. I called out to mum. She didn't answer. In my nightmares, this is where I wake. As I step into the kitchen, seeing the smear of blood near the litter box. I don't wake screaming or bolt upright in my bed, but my cheeks are sometimes wet and my voice hoarse. That's when I get up. That's when I run. That's Question it. time. Come on, you're not going to get them in a room together too often. Christian, um, were you raised in a sect? No, I wasn't raised in a sect, but I had a um, – I, I dated a girl for about six or seven years who was a former Jehovah's Witness. So a lot of um, uh, a lot of the it's different from Pentecostalism. But when she left, she had a really difficult time um, making a break from them and uh, you know maintaining rela- relationships with them and stuff like that. It was really really interesting. And actually, the central um, what happened in in her family, which I took and put directly in the book, was that. Her, there was a period of a few years where her mum believed, but her dad didn't, and they eventually got a divorce. But there was this these years where uh, there was this just tension within the family, where uh, you know, um, where one person, Jehovah's Witnesses, don't believe you go to hell, but they believe, um, you know, that that you won't be resurrected and all this sort of stuff. And and when I transfer that to Pentecostalism, it's like living in a house where you think your partner will, when they die, they're going to go to hell. So I was just really, really interested in that um, family tension. That's sort of the main tension. And um, during research, I couldn't talk. I tried so hard to find a Pentecostal snake handler who would talk to me, Uh, but I I didn't. But I did talk to a Pentecostal um, and uh, someone who left the Pentecostal faith and so much of what – there's a character in the book called Becky and – so much of what she says came directly from uh, this person. Because, uh, uh, you know, I, I was saying earlier I get a lot of um, angry emails because they think I'm anti-religion and I'm, I'm really not. I was raised agnostic and I, I was always really fascinated. I had Catholic friends and and a Jewish friend and all this sort of stuff. I was always so fascinated by their, oh, why do you have to do that? It's so weird, you know. So I kind of, I'm really fascinated by religion and I don't see the book as an anti-religion uh, book at all. It's not anti-religion, but uh, but um, 
yeah, I did make that decision early on that uh, snake handling is actually really uh, to, to sort of like um, I did know I was kind of being uh, not nasty, but I was a little bit judgmental about snake handlers. Uh, but I I really agonized over that and and really it's a really cruel thing for the snakes um and if anyone's wondering i'm weirdly one of these people who are wondering i uh, would be wondering this that uh no snakes die in the book there's a lot of snakes in the book but none of them die um yeah so you can relax with that but in reality it's really cruel to the snake so i kind of you know i kind of uh, to- uh, told myself well you know even if i'm kind of being slightly anti snake handling that's that's why do we have any more questions? There's one up the top here. Yeah. One of the joys of uh, reading crime novels is uh, having guesses about who it is, of course, and a lot of times you get um, led down false trails and you have false leads about what sort of thought do you give to that and when does that come into the process at all? Oh, look, the red herring. I mean, the, I mean I'm always in awe of... I mean, one of the great difficulties you have, is, I think, as a crime writer now is is that people are so well-read and they're well-versed having seen so many crime dramas that they have seen almost every twist that's been, that's been yeah. done. Mm. So you don't have to just have, you have to have the obvious twist and you have to have the next twist because the obvious one is there. Then you have to have the third twist and it's like playing a three-dimensional game of chess. And so often it is about the red herrings and... And, um, and also it's about... It's, and it's so much of it comes down to the rewriting... Um, and and planting seeds after you've gone through it the first time. And John Irving did this beautifully, and I always liken it to you plant landmines. You you plant landmines in your book as you're going through, and you show the reader you're doing it. You show the reader that I'm planting this clue here, okay, but then you distract them with so much other stuff that's going on that when they step on that and they blows their foot off, they go, shit, I I saw you doing that. I saw you doing that but I still forgot about it and it shocked me when it happened. And so that's the skill I think at times. Is to just, it's like being a magician where in sleight of hand to make you look at one hand while the other hand is actually doing all the tricky stuff. But you still see it, but you don't really see it until it happens. There are some very interesting red herring moments in true crime. For example, um, the terrible murder of um, Daniel Morecambe in Queensland and um, – you know, he was waiting for a bus and a um, uh, 12- or 13-year-old boy and um, 72 people testified at the inquest as to have, having seen this blue car just near him. And for 14 years, the blue car was the police's biggest lead and they had this blue car room and they were searching and all this kind of thing. And it turns out the blue car had nothing to do with it. You know, because they found um, Brett Peter Cowan who actually did the murder and he was driving a white four-wheel drive. Um, and I think that when you read a crime novel, you're always looking for things and you're under the, the, the misunderstanding that everything that you drop in there is going to be important. Because why would you mention it otherwise? Why would you mention this blue car? So you're like, oh, I must remember the blue car. So as long as you have enough interesting stuff swirling around um, – you know, but as twisty as you get and as many red herrings as you drop, you will always have somebody who writes in and says, well, I knew who it was. And the classic is somebody wrote to me when um, I wrote my first novel, Hades, 
And she said, I knew who it was immediately, the killer. I just, you know, I, I worked it out really early. And I'm like, it's it's not a whodunit. It's because you, you get to the, the killer. You always know who the killer is. You cut through his perspective and you know his name and all this. And I, I wrote this big email back and then I just went, no, nah, it's all right. Just let I her know. have her little win. What I love she about worked it out. When I, when I wrote Say You're Sorry, I got to the penultimate chapter of that book and I had no idea who the villain was going to be. Yeah. And That's so I, but I created six possible suspects who equally could it could have been, and I made a decision when I got to the end. So when people say to me, "I knew who that was from the moment," I'm thinking, "Well, that was far better job than I did. <laughs> I had yeah. no clue." <laughs> I just wanted to know, and this could be for any one of you or all of you. We're all reading you. Who are you reading? Oh, it's oh, a good question. Um. Well, right now I'm rereading a book. Uh, when when I've read a book and then a few years later it comes out as a movie, I reread it again. So I'm rereading Doctor Sleep, the Stephen King movie, because that's coming out soon. Um, but who do I read? Uh, I read this, this whole uh, range of. Uh, I, I love crime books, but it's sort of I read a lot more. Um, uh, in that sort of world, Gillian Flynn is probably one of my favourite sort of crime writers, if you can call her that. Um, Stephen King's obviously a huge one. Uh, but I also love one of my favourite books ever was this thriller that was written in the 90s. Um, they made a really terrible movie out of it. So if you've just seen the movie and not read the book, go and read the book. Uh, it's called The Beach by Alex Garland. And it's oh, one I of, love that. Oh, my God. It's, I read it. I read yeah. it probably... I used to read it every year. Now I read it every couple of years. That's one of my favorite books ever. Um, yeah, I read a whole uh, Haruki Murakami. Anything that he brings out, I read. Um, yeah, I've got a, kind of a, a quite a, a wide range. Um, lately, I've been reading, which I never. One of the coolest things about being an author is that you get to endorse stuff. So I've got a pile of uh, yeah. books that aren't out yet that I'm that I'm reading my way through now. But um, yeah, what about you guys? Everything that I read at the moment is titled something like. How to get your baby to sleep? Why won't your Why won't your baby sleep? What's wrong with your baby? It won't sleep. Um, so it's there's a lot of that. Uh, but um, Adrian McKinty is bringing one out yes. later called The Chain. It's yeah. just arrived at my house and I asked for it because yeah. if you oh, haven't discovered Adrian McKinty, you are yeah. missing out it's on something great. special. Mm. Yeah, you? so I had to get into that to figure out yes. what all the fuss was about. Yes. And also he's a delightful man. Yeah. I'm a terribly jealous, horrible person. Um, <laughs> and so when I meet other writers, you know, they have to be nice otherwise I won't read their work. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like I've, I've read yours and I've read his and I've, you know, I, I, so I read the work of writers that I like, you know, so I'm hanging out for the new Michael role. Connolly, the new um, Lee Child, all of, yeah, so that's me. Um, oh, I look really widely and, and I guess, the, I mean, right now I'm reading a book uh, a not very old friend of mine called Linwood Barclay, who's a Canadian um, mm-hmm. crime writer who, a bit like The Chain, he's, re- he's got a new book coming out, the new Adrian McKinty. It's got a wonderful, like The Chain, the Adrian McKinty one, is based on this wonderful premise of The Chain Letter. But what if it was The Chain Letter where someone kidnapped your child and the only way you get your child back is if you kidnapped a child yourself? That oh. sort of premise. That's so right. a brilliant it's setup, yeah. and Ella and Lima's new book is again a similar one, set in New York, you know, a vertical city, where on a particular day an elevator with people on board just goes very top and it drops like a stone, and they die. And the next day it happens. It 
tragic accident. Next day it happens again. Next day it happens again. <gasps> and they realise that someone out there oh. has got control oh. in a city like New York, got control of the elevators. And mm-hmm. it's like a... Everyone's taken the stairs. That's, that's actually, that's actually the title. On the Everyone's floor, taken though. the stairs. Yeah. But no, and I, I, I mean, it's funny. I know uh, Jennifer Byrne, who who's reading this one as well, and she lives on a on the fifteenth floor, and she said, "I'm taking the stairs." <laughs> that is all we have time for. We've actually gone a little bit longer than we should have, could have. We could have stayed longer, really, couldn't we? But um. You have to join me, please, in thanking our wonderful guests, Michael Robotham, Candice Fox and Christian White. We'll be dropping a new episode of StoryFest 2019 at the beginning of every month around the same time that they release their newsletter. To find out more about StoryFest, head over to their website, www.storyfest.org.au. To listen to all of our Writes for Festival episodes from all of our awesome regional writing festivals, including Scone Literary Festival, Feminist Writers Festival, Mudgee Readers Festival, National Young Writers Festival, and of course, StoryFest, head on over to our website, www.writesforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. And make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your pods. And that way you'll never miss it when another episode drops in the feed. Please like, share, you know, do all the communal things, tell people about us, and give us a hoy if you have a festival coming up that you'd like us to record and be a part of. You can either send us a message through our Facebook page at Rights for Festivals or go onto the website and send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening sharing and supporting regional writing festivals. Until the next episode, keep reading, thinking and questioning. This podcast was produced, recorded and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.